Can We Live Better Together? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Stephanie Halfley. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Stephanie Halfley. Stephanie is a Senior Research Fellow and the Senior Program and Operations Director of Academic and Student Programs at the Mercatus Centre at George Mason University, where she works on a team aimed to recruit, train, and support graduate students pursuing careers in academia, government, and policy. She is also a Senior Fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Centre. Stephanie received her Ph.D. in Economics from George Mason University in 2016. Stephanie, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So we base each episode on a theme and question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, can we live better together? Of course, that's really an opportunity for us to talk about the edited volume of works titled Living Better Together by you and your co-author, Virgil Henry Storr, and some of the themes in it. So to, to jump right in, let, let's start with the, this book itself. Let's specifically talk about what it is as a high level and, and what do readers find in it. Then we'll get to some more specific questions. Great. Thank you. So this book has really been sort of an evolving project over the past several years where we were able to kind of make the connection between Eleanor Ostrom's work and the work of the econ sociologist Viviana Zelazar. Uh, and so in 2019, we invited Viviana to do our first Ostrom speaker series lecture uh, at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And she got really excited to tie those ideas together. And that lecture ended up turning into the chapter that she has in the book. And so after that, as we saw her connections and our connections about the two types of work, we wanted to get you know young scholars who are you know looking at topics that could be uh, gained from looking at these two different theoretical frameworks uh, to apply these ideas. And so that's how we started the book. It's very interdisciplinary. So we have uh, economists, sociologists, and archaeologists, uh, political science, political theory, and security studies, all looking at how this framework can help us see these ideas in a different way. Perfect. That's great. And I'm going to definitely push further into that on questions. But quick sidebar on sort of a, a personal note, if you will. I'm just curious, genuinely, why is this project in- interesting to you, particularly, and you specifically, before I get into some other stuff about the book? Yeah, absolutely. So since my graduate studies, I got my master's and then my PhD at Mason and then got to continue working at Mercatus. Uh, I've been introduced to Eleanor Ostrom's work and the work of the Commons and how everyday people kind of living on the ground can really come up with solutions that we wouldn't think of otherwise. Um, Through that process, my own research focused on disaster recovery, where we went in and interviewed survivors of natural disasters and how they came back after a storm, worked together to recover. And we really used a lot of these notions that Eleanor Ostrom uses about the commons and what it means to have you know, social networks that we rely on and how we come up with those ideas. Uh, and I had the privilege of meeting her when I was a master's student. So that kind of oh. changed my life forever. <laughs> um, and so those sorts of questions, again, you know, kind of crossing economics, political science, and sociology have been things that have really been in my research from the beginning, thinking about social capital and networks and that as well. And so getting to 
know personally and dig into the ideas of Viviana Zelazar's work where she really brings the relational aspect to economic activities. Uh, it was really inspiring to me to, for, for, to do that. And a lot of our students you know, that are working on these ideas, I thought it was a great way to get them inspired as well. Great. No. Well, I mean, you mentioned a meeting and how it changed your life forever. So as an interviewer, I can't, I can't let that slide. So let's get more into that. What, what was that meeting like and how was that experience and how did it change your life forever? Yeah. So uh, Pete Becky had been doing quite a bit with Eleanor Ostrom and Paul Dragos Alajika at Mercatus, uh, the student of hers as well. So she had planned to come and visit with us uh, at Mason. And then that was the year she won the Nobel Prize in economics. Mm. And so we all thought she'd be way too busy now to come to Mason. Uh, But she still came and she gave lectures. She went to dinner with students. She wanted to know what our research was, not just talking about what her research was. And so I was one of the lucky ones who got to go to a dinner with her and talk to her about what it was like to be a woman in this field, doing field work and getting on the ground. And she was just, you know, very inspiring and very open. Um, and I remember we hugged at the end and she had her little Nobel Prize pin on. And <laughs> it was just, you know, like, here's this person you've looked up to for so many years. And it turns out that she's really, she lives her research. She's this curious, open-minded person. And when I met Viviana, when she came to do the talk, she exuded that energy as well. And that was really exciting to kind of see that. And she just won the top prize from the American Sociology Association a couple of weeks ago. And so you get her getting that recognition as well is, is quite exciting and inspiring as a scholar hoping to live their, up to their shoes. Yeah, no, no, that that's very interesting. And I think because I'm going to ask you with some more follow ups here about both of these uh, women and their work and stuff. So I think just a little bit more on the personal side, because I think it'll help us segue into that context. Um, obviously, yeah. I'm not going to ask you to give us a, a script and transcript of your experiences of meeting there. But after <laughs> meeting, let's start with uh, uh, Ostrom first. Like, what do you feel like was your main takeaway from that whole experience and moving forward sort of in your own head about your own work after, you know, meeting her, but both either on just like the, the scholar perspective or her work? Work? Like what did what did you feel your main takeaway or, or mission is after after that whole experience? Because you said like it sort of changed your life. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was that way that she just kind of embodied curiosity and empathy and you know really solid research, right? And so she would ask questions about your research and she wouldn't be light-handed for you, but it also felt very encouraging in a way that she was, you know, seeking for truth and she was really at this kind of communal community aspect of of what we were doing. And I'd say like that kind of similar vibe um, Viviana brings as well. Uh, Like they both are at the top of their game, but they're taking time to meet with our students, me as I was a student and now the students that work for me. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of living the ideas is a really inspiring way to be a scholar. Very cool. I think that's a great segue jumping off point into getting further into into the book, because I think, you know, as noted, uh, as you noted, when you're sort of giving your overview there, what's in the book really connects the work of uh, Eleanor Ostrom and Viviana Zelotar. Now, can you let listeners know more about these two people and their work, especially if they aren't familiar already? Let's assume someone maybe has heard these names in passing and says like, you know, hey, Stephanie, yes, I've heard these names, but I'm really blank on this. Tell, tell me about both of their work and, and why it's important. And of course, we'll get into some specifics at a high level. What would the main yeah. spiel for these two folks be, in your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. So we can start with Eleanor Ostrom. You know, she was really looking at uh, these kind of, you know, kind of theories that were in economics explaining how we don't live very well together, mostly. So 
models like uh, the tragedy of the commons. When we don't have clear defined property rights, say, for example, like the kitchen in our office space that we share with everyone. Um, when there's not clear defined property rights, we can all use those things. We tend to use them up. We tend to, um, you know, we tend to not clean up after ourselves. It's the worst version of ourselves because we don't have these checks and balances of property rights. Uh, and so you can imagine the end of the day at your office and all the dirty dishes are there and no one's doing it because they can say, that wasn't me. Um, and so she's looking at that, but then she's looking out in the world and she's been doing this field work and she's seeing, well, that happens sometimes, but there are other times where we can have these commons and people figure out a way to manage them together right. in a way that maybe clear property rights wouldn't quite match. And so her contribution really complicates some of these models to say, yeah, that works sometimes, but sometimes we come together in a way that might surprise us. And I think Viviana Zelazar's work is similar in that way where you know, she talks about how we often are so dichotomized, and so does Ostrom. It's state or markets, it's government solutions or something else. And she talks about these ideas of separate spheres in the discipline. And what she's really bringing together is this notion that, like, we are social relational people all the time. And so we are that same person in markets and on these other places. And the relational aspects of market activity isn't necessarily bad or something we shouldn't embrace or study, but actually something really important for how we connect with one another. Uh, and so she looks at, you know, insurance markets and remittances and these uses of money that kind of don't match well with these ideas of you know, really distinct um, you know, moral and economic worlds and how those things work and kind of complicates that to say there's a bunch of ways we interact in these in these ways. Another way to think about the two of them is Zelazar talks about her work being about relational work. We relate with one another and we have these intimate bonds and we still have economic activity and all of these things. Uh, Eleanor Ostrom and her husband, Vincent Ostrom, spent a lot of time thinking about associational work. Uh, which is similar, right? The fact that we associate with one another, we come together to self-govern, uh, we work together in those spaces to come up with those ideas. And so I think both of them kind of say, hey, the outside world is complicated. We should be really interested in that. And hey, maybe part of that is the social aspect and these kind of coming together in, in different types of governance that could be really important. Great. No, I think that was a, that was a great high level introduction overview to the the kind of things that both of these women were, were interested in in their in their studies and so on and so forth. Just to sort of finish off that high level capture of of what they were focused on, especially for again folks that might not be as familiar with this topic or this work. Um, and I know this is sort of like an unfair question, but again, sort of a summary thing as well. If you were to talk to, and we could start with Ostrom again, and then we'll move on to Zeltzer. If you were to talk to each of them, you did a great job explaining this is what the kind of things they were interested in looking into. Could we push a little further into the the kinds of things that they would have found or concluded through their work? If you were to talk to them, and and they said, and someone said, okay, well, well what do you think about X, Y, and Z? What do you feel they, they end up finding? What are they champions of, really? Yeah, so I'd say for Ostrom, it's really this idea of the commons being this sort of um, uh, structured way of, of working about governance. And so she's, over the course of her work, she's looking at how there are common characteristics across successful governance um, instances where it doesn't become the tragedy of the commons. And so that includes kind of 
you know, defining boundaries, graduated sanctions for people who are uh, overusing or misusing the resource, monitoring each other. Um, and she's really getting at that notion of, um, you know, kind of the way Pete Becky talks about it is governing with, not governing over, um, that really gets into that space. And so I think what's cool about her work is it's not just saying, hey, this happens, but here's this theoretical um, uh, framework that really gets at the key characteristics that all the successful ones have. And that helps us to think about what scenarios could we think will be successful or won't because they might not have some of those key characteristics. Um, I'd say similar for Viviana Zelazar's work is, is this idea that, you know, we, we, we think that we can have these really clean, rational, kind of atomistic ideas of the market. And it's really much messier than that. And what, how we're motivated is very different. And so it's this relational motivation that kind of comes in and complicates the matter. And she really gets at this notion of the non-neutrality of money is a major outcome that comes up from her work which is that we actually earmark money for particular things. We come up with our own types of transactions and types of monies that we work with other people. The difference between, um, say, in a household, uh, how the mother's view of money might be different than the father's and the children's, um, and those sorts of things that really get at, you know, kind of complicating some of the ways that we think about money and how we think about policy we're going to get that wrong if we think that everybody treats money the same. And so, you know, things like the um, stimulus after COVID, a lot of people paid down debt or saved and did not buy personal things. Her stuff kind of talks about why we might earmark that as special money to do some of those things. Right. No, that, that's very cool. I'm glad you pushed into that the way you did, because uh, one, one of the things I wanted to ask you about specifically was the sort of, quote unquote, governing the commons when it came to, to Ostrom. Oh. And, and of course, some people are familiar with that term and concept, even if they don't know Ostrom as well themselves. I was actually going to ask you, on the other hand, when it comes to Zelitzer, um, you know, if there was sort of not, not a slogan, that's not the right word, but that sort of term or that thing that encapsulates sort of like governing the commons when it came to Zelitzer. Is it the, the non-neutrality of money? I remember in the introduction of the book as well, there was the circuits of commerce idea what would you kind of put a pin in if if ostrom sort of the governing the commons sort of slice of the pie how would you summarize the, the zealotzer side yeah i would say the circuits of commerce really get at that kind of broader aspect and the non-neutrality of money that she finds is, is examples of those ideas um what's interesting about circuits of commerce is it's these interesting types of organizational structures that that you know, might look like firms and other things, but they're doing something a little bit different. They're kind of based on these community aspects of things, shared understanding, uh, a particular type of money and accounting system. And so what that kind of means can be different in each example, but similar to Ostrom's work, it's like, here's these characteristics that we can find. And I think what's cool is like the circuits of commerce and the governing the commons frameworks, they, they have some overlap. And so we can gain some stuff from seeing what's similar and what's different about each one. Uh, an example of this idea of like specific accounting in these organizations, because that might be hard to grasp, is kind of thinking about remittances. And so when an immigrant comes to a new country and they're working and saving money, they're often sending money back home. And there's a way that this money kind of gets transformed in this way that it's um, often set aside even before they can kind of, you know, buy a new shirt or something that they need at home. They're going to take that money back home first. 
So it's earmarked um, kind of right away and something that we can't really dive into even when we're having a hard time. But also it has expectations of how we use it and account for it uh, and how we kind of work back and forth with one another. Um, you know, kind of clear, you know, maybe a clearer way as you can think of like, um, you go to a coffee shop and you get like bonus points. Uh, and so you, you know, like you get a free coffee after every time that's kind of a type of commerce or money, uh, or some of the work she's been doing on campuses. There's a whole host of types of money that we own. It's only useful on campus with your like, you know, university card to get and how do students work, you know, how do they use this stuff as they as they go about? And so it's kind of an interesting way to look at money in a in a different way than you had before. Right. Sort of this idea that you can't, you know, look across an entire country like the United States, for example, and talk about what students per se do. Like you have to think of this stuff as sort of their own uh, communities, their own sets of commons, if you will. There's norms and different ways things happen within them as well. Yeah. And like, think about like friends, like we now have Venmo and we use it all the time. There's probably about a hundred dollars that just goes back and forth between me and a few of my friends when we go out to eat or go do something. Right. And it's like this set fund, but we, we account for it. We make sure we know who owes what at what time, right. but it's not really something we keep it there for that space. Right. It's kind of like that. Right. Yeah. No, I have some examples I can think of in my own life too, now that you mentioned it. So that's very interesting. Um, you know, I was going to jump into the next question and it's a little early yet to take our break, but I feel like before we pivot to the next thing, it's a good time to actually take it now. So, so we'll do that right now. So everyone, you're listening to the curious task. I'm speaking with Stephanie Halfley today. We'll be right back. The curious task is a podcast from the Institute for liberal studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Stephanie Halfley today. So, Stephanie, I think the first half was great. We went through a, a lot, even in just that sort of shorter time. We talked about both Eleanor Ostrom, uh, Viviana Zelitzar, and all the different kinds of work, and at a high level, sort of what they concentrate on, the questions they were thinking on, and the kinds of conclusions that they uh, came to, and the ways they thought about certain things. Um, you had just mentioned that there are some interesting overlaps between both of their sets of works and interests. So I thought this would be an excellent time to get into to that obviously again we we're going to encourage everyone listening that if you really want to see all this stuff go go check out the book that we keep referring to and we can't Absolutely. just read the whole book here uh in, in the in the short time we do have but but you know again sort of uh even just some of your favorite examples are at a high level if you could talk a bit about the the overlaps and the relations between these two sets of work and and these two uh and these two folks here i think that'd be great just to give the the listener a taste of it yeah, absolutely. So kind of first off, these kind of characteristics of these ideas of governing the commons and circuits of commerce, they have some overlapping characteristics. And so how we uh, sanction one another, the boundaries we create, basically, how do we try to make the commons less everybody free for all, but how do we have these relational ties and accountability structures that make us actually interact better together instead of the tragedy that you see? Uh, and we have a bunch of examples in the book of people applying what they're doing to research and taking the, these ideas. Um, and so we have a, a chapter by an archaeologist, 
uh, Crystal Dozier, who talks about how this notion of polycentricity or governing the commons and these aspects of circuits of commerce could be really helpful in archaeological studies. And that's really cool because I think we we think about, you know, economics and political science, sociology kind of all the time. And you're like, wait, what do they have to say about this? Um, and one of the things she brings up is that, you know, in archaeological studies, you have you can't ask anyone what's actually happening. And so you have to find all these inferences and ways that people were talking to each other, relating to one another, governing together. And these concepts that are kind of, you know, blur some of those boundaries um, or kind of cross some of those separate spheres of disciplines really gives them access to things that they wouldn't have otherwise in, in these times of uh, human development when there weren't maybe clear markets yet or clear states or governments. And so kind of her being able to look at that and seeing how how this could help us piece this together in an interesting way, I think is is, is really cool. Um, you know, kind of another aspect was, you know, there's a um uh there's a chapter on uh governance during war uh in Syria. And so how do we live in this really tumultuous time? with different fighting pe people fighting for governing power, how do we, the actual people on the ground, continue to work and live and do these things? And how do they make those decisions? And so, you know, they uh, she used both Ostrom and Zelazar to be able to think about kind of what of these kind of warring or militant government groups were going to be best suited to come in and actually be productive and give some use to the community. And it meant looking at those community ties, the relations that they had uh, with the community, how they talked about, you know, how they thought about governance um, in an interesting way, because you think here's these very violent groups, but they also have to figure out how to give club goods and, and public goods to the people that need it as well. Mm-hmm. And, and just, and before I, I leave that point and move on to a couple other things here that I want to keep used to kind of keep diving into those things just you know to, to, to sum up some of the things that you were just kind of saying there especially since you know we just talked a lot about at least at a high level uh, both these sets of works and, and how they overlap now um like you know like just we kind of did just you know pose it and make make the theme of our uh, episode today just in a fun way you know can we live better together um yeah. you know for, from b both of these perspectives and, and also sets of work and also how they overlap and the different kind of contributions both of these folks had to their fields um if you were to ask one or, or both of them together like you know okay based on your work you know can we live better together what kind of sort of answer do you think you you, uh, you would get from them in, in a way like what are the kind of conclusions about for instance things that we're seeing today and how we're considering and, and looking at our world today that you think they might uh, lend perspective to from from that sort of question emphasis on the can you know like, can we live better yeah. together yeah so i think there's sort of i think two answers to that question and, and one they would both say we actually do live better than we think if we mm. look around and see how different groups are interacting. Right. Uh, and so Ostrom talks a lot about how, you know, when we think about the tragedy of the commons or this, these ways that we're, we're figuring out how to design and implement governance on people, that there's something really beautiful about saying, wait, they're making decisions about this every day. Let's look. Uh, and then I think they would both say that an appreciation of that would allow us to be even better at, living better together. And so if as policymakers or researchers or scholars that are looking at the problems around the world, 
if we have the appreciation of this bottom-up way of interacting, then the solutions we might, you know, kind of kind of offer or suggest or 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 cultivate might be more numerous and plural and better at getting at those ideas than sort of thinking about I know the better way to do to do those things. And so I think they kind of. You know, it's like it's one of those where it's like a bit of a snarky answer. Like one, uh, there's a bunch of that happening all over all the time. But two, if we really had that humility and we really empowered more of the kind of self-governance that you would have, that, that we would probably, you know, be able to work past some of these big divisions that are currently very big because we have to find a one size fits all solution um, on how to move forward. Right. And another thing sort of a little different, but in a similar sort of vein, and again, something we're not going to solve just on a podcast here, but but anything that sort of comes to mind when I throw this at you here, when it comes to their ideas, how they overlap and what they mean, um, sort of a twofold question here. What do you think uh, they've already contributed to sort of mainstream economics and political economy that has either already been absorbed and is now being taken more seriously? That's the first fold, if you will. And the second fold oh. of the twofold is what do you think hasn't been that more, you know, uh, people in political economy and economics and so on should sort of take a, uh, a deeper look at, if you will, if they haven't already. Yeah. So I think kind of both push the way we think about rationality. And so they're not necessarily saying that kind of um, rational economic thinking or the, the kind of pure logic of choice isn't valuable, but how people are rational isn't necessarily what kind of like a strict homo economicus view would be where we have all of the knowledge and we can update immediately and kind of all of those things. It's the kind of take and I think push forward what um, Vernon Smith calls ecological rationality, which is more of, you know, kind of the practical, actual everyday stuff that we see that people are purposeful uh, and learn from their mistakes over time. And so I think they both have pushed that. I think over time, the discipline has gotten a bit more open about what rationality means. Uh, we still have lots of fights about that, right? Behavioral economics is often pointing out what's irrational rather than broadening the scope of what rationality might be. Uh, and so I think they both offered that. And I do think, um, you know, that, that kind of recognition of, of community and, and bottom-up solutions is there, but could be a lot more. Um, in economic sociology, Viviana Zelzar has had a big impact. And so they kind of call it the relational turn. It's not just about networks and social capital, but the actual combination of how people interact together. Um, I think that economists could do a lot with taking a bit more of that back over to our discipline as well. Um, and kind of similarly, both of them, you know, contribute a ton to economics, uh, but they come from disciplines on the outside. So, uh, you know, uh, Ostrom was a political scientist by training and, and taught in uh, political science and public administration. Uh, Viviana at, in sociology, working on economic sociology. And so they're able to kind of look in and, and take out, but there's still a lot more about embracing them as full stop and getting them into that space. Very cool. And and actually pushing, I'm, it's very interesting the way, of course, I, I can only prepare notes. I don't know where the answers are going to go. But like, I think that answer actually provides a very nice, 
like a uh, way to just tap right into another thing I sort of want to push a little bit into here. Like, because right in the intro section of the book, uh, you, you, you and your co-author know that Zeltzer discusses sort of the, the three standard ways in which economic processes are, were and sort of are viewed within economics and sociology. This idea of the, the separate spheres, the hostile worlds and the nothing but approach. And then you guys yeah. go on to talk about how, uh, you know, that's not necessarily the case and what we can learn from these types of approaches and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, can, can you go through actually what all three of those mean and to also talk a bit about why they're not necessarily, well, why, why they're arguably, I guess, really an incomplete picture, not necessarily the case. I think that's almost a good way to, to sort of end cap yeah. what you were just talking about, actually. Yeah, absolutely. So this notion of separate spheres is really like the disciplines. Can you can kind of think about it of a kind of separating those out? So kind of politics and morality and community is different than economics and kind of all of those kind of sets. And you can think about that within economics as, you know, it's often, is the market doing it or is government? Uh, and so Ostrom similarly was like, why do we just think these two are, you know, there's something maybe in between uh, and maybe we can't ever actually distinct uh, these two um, in any way, right? Um, and that can get at the combination we can talk about in a little bit, how that is very similar to, say, Austrian economics and public choice and some of the the, the other um, fields of economics that, that I'm particularly interested in. Um, and so that idea of kind of distinct settings means we look at those in very distinct ways. And so we're not going to really spend a lot of time digging into morality in the market because those are distinct worlds that we interact with in different ways. The hostile worlds approach takes that separate fears and makes it a negative thing if we interact with them. So actually, if we care about morality, we want to keep it out of the market because it's going to destroy our morality or a sense of community or trust and things in the market. Um, it might also, you know, if we care about politics, making it look more like the market, right, is going to going to destroy what's good about politics or, or have this negative impact. And so this idea that they corrode each other um, is kind of the hostile world's approach. Uh, and then the nothing but approach is an interesting one where it's basically saying like, okay, the distinct spheres isn't quite right. Uh, but so what we're going to focus on is like culture matters or race matters or um, you kind of very specific things and that can be useful and it can add some nice critical thought, but it's still not a complete picture because it's still kind of messier, right? And so to take sort of, you know, we can think of like kind of intersectionality, that kind of term as being like, it's gotta be, it's a mix of and and both and all of those things uh, might actually be how the world is and how markets and morality and communities are as well. Um, and so that's sort of what she's getting at. I'd say Ostrom was very similar where she didn't like the dichotomies. Uh, and she talked frequently about how there is no panacea. There is no like government solution or market solution. There's a bunch of solutions. And that's where she gets into this notion of polycentricity for governance, which is just, you know, a, a much a more, not necessarily just decentralized, but uh, kind of many types of ways of governing altogether. Um, and this kind of fits really well, I think, with a lot of the work we've been doing with the Hayek program in this kind of Austrian public choice and institutional analysis position, because, you know, we're seeing, you know, if we take public choice, for example, the same people that go and shop for groceries go and work in government as a bureaucrat, and they still might have the same incentives of keeping doing well in their life and feeding their family and 
you know, things like that. And so being just purely public spirited probably isn't the right way to think about how individuals act and the, beha- and the behavior and the incentives that they have in government. Um, you know, similarly, uh, my colleague who co-edited the book with me, Virgil Henry Store, he's done a lot of work on the market as a social space where we learn to become friends and we learn to interact together and we learn to do a bunch of things in the market space and that it's not necessarily always corroding. It's 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 actually a place where we learn to be moral creatures and kind of do those things as well. Uh, and so kind of getting at kind of all of the, those areas is why we think those those are those original approaches aren't quite right. Um, and how you can kind of complicate the matter a lot more by by being a little bit messier about how you think about that. Of course, less linear and clean analysis, right? But maybe more close to the real world. Right. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. You say that towards the end there, too, because one one thing that I took away uh, from from sort of the, the critique, if you will, of all three of those approaches specifically, um, especially when keeping in mind Ostrom's and Zelser's work, is that it, it seems that many often take a very narrow mind on even what the idea of market interaction is like, you know, in between individuals and what that looks like. Uh, You know, that is to say a lot of people often just think of it as either strictly commerce or strictly something a little more rigid when in reality it does, you know, often seem to be a more subtle and nuanced. I mean, if we take the metaphor of the marketplace for ideas or even governing the commons, we're not talking about just strict interaction and exchange here. Anyways, do you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. And like, think about all of the things that give us more options and ways that we live now, right? Like you can, uh, you can, you can stay home and take care of your kids, but you can also have a babysitter or you take them to school and those things. And so, you know, market interactions include things like family and, you know, kind of intimate relationships as well as these other things or, um, you know, you kind of healthcare, uh, Zelazar talks about this quite a bit, right? There's this idea that, you know, we take it a lot internally in the family, but you can also, you know, we also can hire people and, and do things for that too. And so I think that kind of complicatedness uh, matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, another sort of one, one to throw at you here, a bit of a gear shift. It, so, you know, just, just a handful of decades ago, there was, of course, the broader stroke, great debate, if you will, surrounding like really in, in a very serious way, production of goods for people to use and consume, you know, like the capitalism versus command economy discussion dominated the 20th century. And of course, that is still around to some degree. It seems to me, at least, that we're back to a new wave of states and governments and even in their messaging and the way they talk to people, very interested in massaging social cohesion and culture through policies, often in the name of everyone living better together. Um, firstly, do you, do you seem to agree with that sentiment that there seems to be a political shift in this area? And secondly, more importantly, do you think that poses a danger to people more naturally figuring out a way to govern the commons, if you will? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think in this kind of you know time of polarization and, you know, the complicated nature of a lot of what we're doing, we're seeing a lot more calls for big centralized policy change uh, and sort of that push for what, you know, like that we can all we have a one size fits all approach and that we can do that. And I think it really does hinder the potential for people to figure it out on their own, um, but also kind of it it signals to us that we might not have to be a part of the solution. We can just ask for it from above. Um, And I think that gets really tricky too. In in thinking about these examples, I always think of one of of the last pieces Eleanor Ostrom worked on was climate change. She's got this really short article on climate change, but I find what she says really profound. And it's like, 
yes, it is a huge, big, messy problem that we think maybe like we need the biggest organizations and the biggest minds to get to. But it's also a big, messy problem that we need to start now. And so if we wait for everybody to come to consensus at a top level of how to fight climate change, we will be waiting for a while. And we're seeing that in real time and that frustration, right? And so her kind of saying, you know, yeah, you might personally not make a huge impact on the whole big problem. But if we start going about it in multiple different ways, we're actually going towards solving the problem rather than just pushing it up a level to the, to the top and then being frustrated when when those, those solutions don't come down. And so I think that you know, what she called it was the art of association. So if we aren't practicing self-governance and working together to come up with problems, we might lose the kind of muscle memory of how to do that. And so she was really for, you know, the fact that we need more and more of that in our space in life, not less and less, to get better at these hard solutions. Right. Right. No, that, that's very interesting. You mentioned the, the point of muscle memory there, too, because it seems to me that um, from both the Ostrom and Zeltzer perspective, you know, people need to be actively practicing sort of their interaction with other people and, and you know, existing really in a culture and a, and a society beyond, you know, I'm just being fun and flippant here, beyond sitting at home and ordering things from Amazon and watching Netflix all the time, you know, governing the comments or however else you want to put it, participating in these circuits of commerce seems to be things that you need to actually be doing all the time, right? It, it, problems aren't going to solve themselves in that regard. Yep. And like, that's kind of a bummer. It'd be great to do, watch more Netflix and get more things delivered. But I think it's part of social life is that we actually have to participate quite a bit. Right, exactly. And one sort of final question here before we move up to the formal wrap up, but just uh, for someone interested in these kind of topics or just getting into them, um, uh, two things. Uh, one, what do you hope they get from this book? ultimately? And two, um, what other kinds of reading beyond your folks' book do you think that they should be looking into if they're just starting out here? And they're like, you know what, I listened to this episode, I want to know more, where would you point them to? Yeah, absolutely. So within the book, I think we get, you know, hopefully they get at the sense of like, yes, there is this happening. And I'm, I'm curious, and I want to be able to highlight that more, or think about that more in our policy solutions. Um, and that there's a ton of examples that they get to apply to, right? So if you're interested in immigration or family or the war in Syria, there's chapters for that. Uh, I'd say kind of next steps, um, you know, Ostrom's Governing the Commons is an excellent book that goes through so many examples of fieldwork that um, highlight how people are, are kind of coming together to do governance um, across the world. Uh, Viviana Zelazar's Economic Lives is a great book to dig into as well, uh, because it really kind of gets at, it's one of her latest ones. And so it kind of covers a lot of the research she's done over the years and also highlights a lot of research by her students and colleagues uh, that is really kind of getting at this notion of relational work and how we have a robust, rich life uh, that we should be digging into and looking at a bit more. Great. Thank you for that. I'm going to move us to our, to our formal wrap up. I mean, like we, we, we packed a lot into that time that we spent together. That's a lot of information to chew on. Yeah. I'll probably be listening to this episode <laughs> twice and I was, I was here. So that's excellent. Um, so, so let, let me just bring us to our formal wrap up. So uh, Stephanie, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word to bring everything full circle and sort of put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you officially the last question. What do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to us here 
on whether we can live better better together and the kinds of themes and, and the work of of these two scholars that we talked about today. In other words, if you wanted someone to leave listening to this episode with just one, two, or a few takeaways in mind, what would that ultimately be that you'd want them to take away? Yeah, I think I'd want, uh, and this is definitely the way I've, I kind of think about research is, you know, that the world is really messy and complex, but that there's a lot of really interesting, unique ways that we figure out how to do that. And so both of these scholars, Ostrom and Zelazar, really, they simplify really complex phenomenon that you would be so puzzled by uh, without their their framework. Uh, but they also complicate some of our are clean ways of thinking that need to kind of kind of be opened up a bit. And so, you know, that notion of there is no panacea or there's no clear blueprint, but there are a ton of awesome examples and ways that we can think about uh, to kind of solve problems are kind of the big takeaways I hope they get. Great. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So Stephanie Halfley, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.